The reading is on page 1031 of the Bibles in front of you. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 23, and then 38 to 44. Page 1031, Luke chapter 4. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And then on to verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it's your word. And thank you that you speak to, it, to us through it. And we ask that as we Um, look at a few passages, but as we also then try to relate it to the huge needs in our world, that you would speak to us and teach us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we uh, come to the last in our talk on this uh, series on the human journey, where we've been looking um, at various topics medically and try to think biblically about them. Many of the subjects that we've thought about have been direct, have been of direct relevance to us, or if not to us personally, then to certain just people that we know well. As we thought about the start of life, as we thought about marriage, 
physical health, mental health, and the end of life, there have been things that have been discussed which we could at various points have put into, have taken note of and, and put into practice. But today we're going to be thinking about our response to global health issues. And you may say, how does that affect me? We may well ask that. And if you've looked at our title, our title adds this question, who is my neighbor? With a sort of implication, what's my responsibility? Well, that question, who is my neighbor, is a question that Jesus was asked by an expert in the Jewish law, recorded for us by Luke. And it may be helpful just to turn to that. We'll be coming back to Luke 4 in a little bit. But if you'd like to turn to page 100 and, uh, sorry, 1042, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Probably a story that we, most of us all know very well. So Jesus was asked this question, who is my neighbor? And uh, he responded by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, the Jewish man who was left half dead by robbers on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's quickly ignored by a passing priest and a Levite, but it was a Samaritan, a cultural and racial enemy of the Jewish man, who actually rescues him, giving of his time, compassion and resources. Years ago, when I was uh, with a church group in Israel, um, our Israeli guide pointed out some ruins on the Jerusalem to Jericho Road as the site, of, and he said to us, that's the site of the inn to which the Good Samaritan took the victim. Of course, we all laughed and said, actually, that's a, that story was a parable. It wasn't a true story. Jesus told that story in answer to the question, and who is my neighbor? But before we go on to think about some of the implications of what that means, it's worth just looking a bit deeper at this text here in Luke 10. The law expert wanted Jesus, to, he wanted to test Jesus, and he asked him what he had to do, what he had to do to inherit eternal life. You know, what do I have to do? And Jesus responded with a summary from the Old Testament. He took a bit out of Deuteronomy and a little bit from Leviticus. And we've had that this morning. Clive has just, uh, uh, just a few moments ago, read for us a summary of the law, that summary of the law, which talked about loving God and loving our neighbor. And Jesus said to the man, do this, you do that, and then you'll live. But of course, we all know that you can never do enough to gain eternal life. If that were possible, if it were possible to love God with all our heart or our soul or our strength or our mind and to love our neighbor as ourself, well then, but it's impossible, isn't it? We can't do it. We can't earn God's forgiveness and mercy because it's a free gift to be accepted. So when the questioner wanted to justify himself, and uh, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus told this parable, which is so improbable. I mean, it's absolutely not the answer that the uh, expert in the law would be expecting. And actually, it's a really difficult, if not sort of almost impossible thing to do. And at the end of it, he grudgingly had to agree that the neighbor was the one who had had mercy on him to which Jesus said, go and do likewise. Well, that's an impossibly, absurdly difficult thing to do. Be like asking someone today, like asking a refugee who was fleeing from northern Iraq to stop and help a wounded ISIL fighter. Impossible, an impossible thing to do almost. And yet in one sense, that's the point of the parable. If we think that we can do anything, to gain eternal life, then we're completely at the wrong starting point. 
but we're not let off the hook. Because though we can never earn our salvation by doing the right thing, we are still called, if we're Christians, to live lives pleasing to the Lord. And those two parts to the summary of the law are there to guide us. So we are still, even though it doesn't help us earn our salvation, we are to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we are really to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the parable shows us that this definition of neighbor is so much wider than any of us would prefer. And it does come at significant cost. In today's global village, all human neighbors in one sense, all human beings in one sense are our neighbors. So as we think about some of the global health issues, we might easily feel overwhelmed. We might think, how can I possibly be a neighbor in the face of so much need? And in a sense, that's precisely it. We can't do it. And yet, being a, you know, because being a neighbor isn't easy, and yet we're called to be a neighbor. So let's look at some of the issues. Wherever we live in the developing, in the world, whether we live in the West or in the developing world, wherever we live, we're all going to face illness and death. <clears throat> but actually, in the developing world, Especially, many people suffer and die from illnesses that are easily preventable and curable. <clears throat> if you've been here in previous weeks, you may have heard me say that um, many of us can expect to live well into our 80s. Across the world, though, it's not the same. So in high-income countries like our own, more than, or many countries, many, two-thirds, more than two-thirds of all people live well beyond the age of 70 and predominantly die of chronic diseases. So... We die of things like heart disease, of strokes, of chronic obstructive lung disease, of cancer, of diabetes, and dementia. But in low-income countries, one in, only one in five of all people reach the age of 70. So 66-70% in developed countries, only 20% in low-income countries. And more than, a third, more than a third of all those deaths are amongst children under 15. And people there die predominantly of infectious diseases. They die of things like lung infections, of diarrheal diseases, of HIV and AIDS, of tuberculosis, of malaria. Many women and infants die from the complications of pregnancy and childbirth. In, 20, uh, in 2013, 6.3 million deaths across the world were among children under the age of five. <clears throat> and of those, 99% of them were in low- and middle-income countries. When we looked at uh, physical health, we saw the risks of smoking. And worldwide, tobacco use is responsible for deaths of almost one in 10 adults. So across the world, 5.6 million people die a year of something related to smoking. Smoking is often the hidden cause of diseases like heart disease or some cancers or COPD lung disease. And so often, those diseases will be recorded as being responsible for death, but behind it is tobacco use. But actually, tobacco use isn't <clears throat> the biggest hidden cause of death worldwide. That's actually poverty. Because in general, in high-income countries, people die of diseases related to wealth. But in low-income countries, they die of diseases related to things related to poverty. So we need to be aware of poverty, of its effects on the world's most vulnerable people. And as Christians, we need to be concerned for vulnerable people. We need to think vulnerable people are 
could be street children in a, in a developing world, or they may equally be defenseless babies in the womb. They're all equally important to God. So how as Christians do we <clears throat> respond to such overwhelming need? And of course our example is to follow the Lord Jesus. And that's what Christians have done for the past 2,000 years. Particularly in the field of caring and medicine, Christians have been at the forefront. <clears throat> Some of our ancient uh, hospitals started as centres of care provided by Christians. So St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, where I trained, was already 850 years old when I went there, having been founded in 1123. Many missionaries <clears throat> have been sent to the developing world, not only to spread the gospel, but also to bring medical aid and caring. And even today, there are still many opportunities to go to places as healthcare workers. So one of the links that we have here at St. Mary's now is with Derek and Nirina Harborn, who are working um, in Uganda. I've got a number of friends and contemporaries who've spent years working in medical mission settings. John and Judy Ellison could tell us about the wonderful witness of the Mennonite Christians in, in Paraguay, and they have a wonderful, um, impressive hospital in the Chaco in Paraguay. <clears throat> what motivates people to serve like that, we may say? Well, Luke 4 is helpful. So if you'd like to turn back to that, so Luke 4 on page <clears throat> uh, 1031. So it's helpful there as we read Jesus' mission statement. Jesus was reading there from one of the Old Testament prophets who was reading from Isaiah, and he said that these words in verses 18 and 19 apply to him. Let me read them. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was staggering claims, really, to apply those to himself because Isaiah in his prophecies talked about two people, it seemed. He talked about a Messiah and he talked about a suffering servant. And here Jesus is identifying himself, bringing both of those roles together, saying he had come to rescue his people by suffering in their place. <clears throat> and of course, as we saw there, the local people in Nazareth, they didn't see that. They were nudging each other saying, that's Joseph's son, that's Joseph's son. But of course they were wrong. Luke has already told his readers in his uh, gospel in chapter 3 by means of the genealogy that Jesus was God's son. And then at the start of chapter 4, even the devil has acknowledged Jesus to be the son of God. <clears throat> so we need to uh, understand these words from Isaiah firstly as relating to God's big picture. Big picture which we all I guess well, most of us know well, Jesus coming into the world so that God had created, but spoiled by human rebellion. The center point being of history being when Jesus died in our place, when he was raised back to life and is now ascended. The Holy Spirit sent to help us live um, and to be with us. But our world still remaining a fallen, broken place. But one day Jesus will return and there will be judgment, new heavens and a new earth. It's in the context of that big picture that these words of Jesus firstly apply. He came to bring good news of rescue from punishment we deserve. He came to free us from the bondage to sin 
He came to open our eyes to see his truth, to know the liberty of being children of God. We need to understand his mission statement, this mission statement here in Luke, firstly in those terms. We need to understand it as the Messiah, the suffering servant coming to rescue us from the consequences of our rebellion. But we can also read these words as Jesus' mission statement for his three years of ministry before the cross. It's very clear from the Gospels that Jesus' primary ministry, primary mission rather, was to preach the good news of the kingdom. We see that here. If you turn over and just look at verse 43, Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. That was Jesus' primary ministry. But his earthly ministry also had three further features, which are listed back there in, in verses 18 and 19. So he came to bring deliverance. It says, he says he came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. We didn't read verses 31 to 37, but they're an example of Jesus delivering a man from an evil spirit. And then we also had that in verse 41, that he... Um, demons came out of many people saying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them. So it was deliverance. And then there was healing. Jesus says he came to bring recovery of sight for the blind. And we know that there are several accounts of blind people being healed. And in our passage here, we had in verses 38 to 40, more general healings. And then he also talks about justice there in verses 18 and 19, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And as his, as his followers, Christians, we're to have the same concerns. Of course, we can't fulfil Jesus' mission statement in the way that he did. Only he could rescue us. But we can still today follow his example in preaching, in healing, in bringing deliverance, and in seeking justice. So perhaps we can just think for a little while just about those four areas. Thinking about preaching, first of all. This was, this was Jesus' primary mission, preaching. And it needs to be the first concern of Christians in the church today. People, wherever they are, need to hear the good news of the gospel. And across the world, the need is enormous. Jesus said in Matthew, it's recorded in Matthew 28, 19, "'Go and make disciples of all nations.'" It was good a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it, to have David and Rachel Williams visiting us and to hear of their work preparing people to go um, and work in cross-cultural settings um, in order to bring the good news of the Lord Jesus to places where he's unknown. Some of the people that they train are going to be um, working in what is referred to as the 1040 window. That's between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north of the equator. So part of the world that makes up much of, much of Africa and Asia. Part of the world where there are more unreached people than anywhere else. Many of these countries are called creative access countries because Christian workers must enter them using creative means, such as bringing medical or other professional help. But we don't just have to think about the 1040 window. Europe is also in need of hearing and responding to the gospel. And there are huge opportunities also for Christian witness to people from different cultures who come to work or study in the West. We may be called to go and witness to the Lord Jesus elsewhere, 
Or it may be that our calling is to witness in the settings in which God has put us. And of course, we can all pray. We can all pray and we can all give of our resources to further the spread of the gospel. So just very briefly, that was preaching, which was Jesus's primary concern. But then looking at deliverance, the man that we didn't read about but referred to in verse 33, he needed to be delivered from the evil spirit. He was like a prisoner. In the West, we may not be aware of um, evil spirits. In fact, the devil's best lie is to make people think that he doesn't exist. But people continue to be enslaved, not necessarily by overt demon possession, but by all sorts of addictions. So whether it's alcohol or drugs or tobacco or pornography, those things cause as much dependence in the developing world as they do in the West. But we can also see far more subtle forms of addiction, addiction to work, to career, to wrong relationships, to possessions, all things that push God out of people's lives. Lots of people suffer and die because they've become slaves to a self-destructive lifestyle from which they need deliverance. And the Lord Jesus' ministry included bringing deliverance from whatever it was that people needed to be delivered from, whatever it was that prevented them from knowing and following him. Satan tries to deceive people. He's always done that. He always keeps on doing that. And Christians, as Christians, need to bring the truth of God's word and the truth that ultimate freedom and enjoyment and lasting happiness can only come from following God's way. And then if we turn to think about healing, <clears throat> so just as Jesus cared for the whole person, so should we today. Jesus and his disciples brought healing to all sorts of situations, the blind, the deaf, the lame. But of course we don't need to remember that not everyone in Israel was healed, and even all those who were healed, well eventually everyone still died. Today there are miraculous healings, perhaps more particularly in areas unreached by the gospel. But Christians throughout the ages have been involved in caring for the sick and healing using the gifts of good medicine. The needs are, today are still enormous. So just a few examples. So worldwide, 39 million people suffer from blindness, and yet 80% of visual impairment can be cured. I can remember when I was a medical student doing my elective in Kenya, the delight uh, shown by patients able to see again, a visiting eye surgeon with Christoffel Blinden mission had come for a couple of days. I did many simple operations on scores of people who had walked, in some cases, days to a remote rural mission hospital. <clears throat> Thinking about ladies and women in pregnancy and childbirth, World Health Organization has set various millennium development goals um, with targets for 2015. So we've got to that stage now in, this, in these goals. And one of them was to reduce by three quarters between from 1990 to 2015, the maternal mortality rate ratio. So globally, an estimated 289,000 women died during pregnancy and childbirth in 2013. That was a decline of 45% from the levels in 1990. So you can see still a long way to go to get to the three quarters, the 75% target that was set for this year. Most of those women died because they had no access to skilled uh, routine and emergency care, so no midwives, 
to provide the routine care and no facilities, for example, for emergency caesarean sections. Some countries in Asia, North Africa, have more than halved mortality since 1990, and there has been some progress in sub-Saharan Africa. But in sub-Saharan Africa, a woman's lifetime risk of dying during pregnancy and childbirth still remains very high. Lifetime risk is one in 38, whereas in the developed world, it's one in 3,700. Another of the World Health Organization, the WHO development goals, was to reduce the under five mortality rate by two thirds between 1990 and 2015. There's been some progress. Globally, the number of deaths of children under five fell from 12.7 million in 1990 to 6.3 million in 2013, but still only about half rather than the two-thirds. And the first 28 days of, of life is the most vulnerable to a child's survival. So in 2013, around 44% of the under fives deaths occurred during this period in the first 28 days of life. And that was actually up from 37% in 1990. At the end of 2013, 35 million people were living with HIV. That same year, some 2.1 million people became newly infected. Something like 12 million people in low and middle income countries were receiving antiretroviral therapy. But more than two thirds of new HIV infections are in sub-Saharan Africa. And the HIV AIDS needs of many uh, those needs alone, just the HIV AIDS and AIDS needs alone of many African countries could exhaust their entire health budgets. Effective strategies, prevention strategies exist. Sexual faithfulness and the promotion of marriage play a key part in these. An old friend of mine who um, teaches in a theological college in Nigeria a few years ago saw the need for openness, honesty and Christian teaching about living with HIV AIDS particularly amongst church communities in Nigeria. And he set up an organization, Grace and Light, which now works in several African countries. One third of the world's population is at risk of malaria. In 2013, 198 million cases occurred and well over half a million people died. Most of them children under five in Africa. On average, malaria kills a child every minute. And then TB, tuberculosis has been curable for relatively low cost for over 50 years, but we now have the world's worst TB epidemic ever. It's exacerbated by AIDS and multi-drug resistance. An estimated 9 million new cases of TB in 2013, and an estimated 1.5 million deaths. So that makes TB one of the world's biggest infectious disease killers. That's equivalent to six fully laden jumbo jets falling out of the sky every day. So with such needs, how do we respond? I've mentioned the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, Millennium Development Goals, and later this year, Sustainable Development Goals will be launched in New York. Recently, the medical journal, The Lancet, launched a series of papers on the role of faith groups in the delivery of healthcare. Steve Fouch from the Christian Medical Fellowship has written helpfully about this all in a recent CMF blog, and I'll end this section by just quoting from some of his final comments. So quoting from Steve Fouch, Christians have been engaged with health issues since the first century. Care for the sick, the vulnerable, and the dying is an integral expression of our faith. 
It may be an expression that the Western church and missionary movement has forgotten in the last 60 or 70 years, but in so many parts of the world, it is still a vital part of the life, worship, and mission of the church. While we may not always agree with all the agendas of secular development agencies, UN bodies, and national governments, on the whole, we share the same concerns and want to find common ground to work together. Yes, the churches need to become more literate in health and health needs, in the ethics of healthcare and the role of health in the worship and mission of God's people, but we also need the secular institutions to stop ignoring or sidelining the work we do. And he continued, churches and church hospitals are often the only local infrastructure in many poor communities. We were there, the churches, the Christian hospitals, long before the donors with their three to five year funding cycles turned up. And we'll be there long, long after they've gone off after the next new priority to occupy them. We were working for the health of women and children, the dying, people living with HIV, those suffering the mental and physical scars of war and intercommunal conflicts long before the Millennium Development Goals were agreed and will be long after the Sustainable Development Goals will be wrapped up in 2030. And then finally, quickly to look at justice. Proverbs 31, verses 8 to 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Jesus, in this mission statement in Luke 4, spoke um, of being sent to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That phrase, the year of the Lord's favour, almost certainly refers to the Jubilee year, the 50th year when debts were cancelled, when slaves were released and property returned to the original owner. Well, this could be a whole series of talks on their own, so just a few headlines relevant to global health to think about. Firstly, climate change, it's an issue of justice, and in so many ways it affects health. So just one little example, well, very significant, but one of many Climate change is moving its frontiers northwards in Europe and the former USSR, endangering even more people from malaria. Or what about healthcare resources? Our UK NHS recruits healthcare workers from overseas to plug gaps in our system. And what about this? Today, two billion people still lack safe sanitation. One billion don't have safe water, and a further billion live in severe poverty. Every day, 110,000 people in a developing world, 20,000 of them being children, die largely from preventable diseases. So we think about the situation in Greece. I'm not sure what the effects of the Greek debt crisis will have on the vulnerable and ill in Greece, but I guess it won't be good. Three weeks ago, if you were here, then you'll have heard Leanne and... and me speak about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide and the bill that's coming back to Parliament in September. The proposals would be very dangerous for many vulnerable, for many vulnerable people. So as Christians, we have a responsibility to speak out and fight the corner of the marginalized, the disempowered, and those without a voice, the poor, the elderly or confused people, those with chronic or psychiatric illnesses, children born or unborn. So as we conclude, let's go back to that question we started with, who is my neighbor? 
It's really important that we have a global perspective as Christians. Too often we can be insular, parochial in our thinking. Problem is the needs are so great and when we start to think about it, we think, well, we can do so little ourselves. We may be tempted not to bother at all, but the Lord Jesus calls us to follow him. He calls us to walk in his way. Our task is first to witness for him in our society, both by our lives and in what we say. We need to be speaking for him. Some of us may be called to go to different cultures as witnesses for the Lord Jesus, but that probably isn't going to be the case for most of us. We can all give of our resources as we're able, and we're all called to pray. Praying is something that we can all do. We can pray for God's word to be heard in many of those difficult places. And we can also pray for those who are serving the Lord in those places, trying to meet physical needs, as well as telling people about the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, as we think about our world and the enormous needs that there are, we can be overwhelmed. And yet we thank you that you care for our world, that you care for us so much that you came, first of all, to save us from the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. You also came to um, bring help and healing to people as well. We pray that you'd help us to have a right perspective on how we should relate to our world. Please help us to be generous with our resources. Help us to, to be good witnesses for you. And please, above all, make us prayerful people that your word may go forth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.